I am hoping that many of you have come out of your sugar coma this week after having Easter. Um, I checked our Easter baskets on Tuesday and they were empty. That made me a little nervous, to which I said, Joel, did you get into these? <laughs> Just kidding. Uh, so last week we celebrated Easter, and if you were here, what an incredible time together. Um, I want to let you know that we had over 30 new visitors. We had 21 people accept Jesus as their Savior. Yeah. Amazing. And we ate all the waffles. So they were just gone, completely gone. And Easter truly does change everything. This week, we are going to celebrate baptisms here at the end of service. So in just a little bit, we'll have some more time to worship together and to celebrate those uh, 13 people have prepared today to come. And I'm asking that the Lord would um, even prompt some of you that didn't think you were going to get baptized today um, to take that step of faith. And so before we do that, I want to just take a few minutes. Um, the first week of this series, we talked about the events leading up to Easter, the events leading up to the crucifixion and the resurrection. And then last week, we talked specifically about the resurrection. And so this week, I want to talk about what happened after that epic moment. What was happening when the resurrection was over, when he, he rose, or the, the crucifixion, the, the angel came, saw the tomb was empty, the people saw the tomb was empty, what happened next? And so this is what we know from the scripture. We know that Mary stood outside of the tomb crying. She was just so brokenhearted. She was, she was weeping. And a, a person came up to her that she thought was the gardener, uh, in that particular area, and, and she said to the gardener, where have you taken Jesus? And to which the man replies to Mary, it's me, I'm Jesus. And that is the first uh, moment that Jesus reappears to his people. And I want to look at it in John 20, 17. Jesus says to Mary, do not hold on to me, for I have not yet returned to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am returning to my Father and your Father, to my God and to your God. And what I love in that moment is Jesus takes every opportunity to remind us that he is our God and he is our Father. And he wasn't just Mary's God or Mary's Father. He is, he is ours. And the work on the cross and the resurrection was because of his deep love for us. And that was the first moment that Jesus reappeared to people. So then we continue on, and we know uh, last week we talked a little bit how, how the disciples were fearful because they had just watched the person they were following uh, die and be crucified, and so they were very concerned that what was going to happen to them because they had supported him. They, they were the ones who followed him around. People knew that they were uh, his disciples, and so they uh, ran into the room, and they locked the door because they were worried about what would happen to them. And um, Jesus appears to them. And we talked about this last week. He walks right through the locked door. He, he makes closed doors open. And he says, the scripture records, peace be with you. Now, I'm sure that he is reminding them, okay, relax. I know that this is probably a little strange. Don't freak out. Peace be with you. But I also want you to know that the words peace be with you is a normal Hebrew greeting at the time. So in our day, it would translate something like, what's up? Or how you doing? How you doing? That's, that's what it would translate to. 
And it's a little humorous if you think about it, because the disciples are hiding out. They are nervous. They're afraid. No one even knocks on the door. Jesus just walks through the locked door, appears to them, and says, how you guys doing? (laughs) Can you imagine the disciples' eyes were probably very wide in that moment? I'm not even sure how you respond to that. (laughs) But in John 20, 20, it says, after they got over their shock, that Jesus says this, he showed them his hands and his feet and his side, and the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. And his hands and his feet and his side were where the wounds were. In the Gospel of Luke, um, the writer tells us that um, the disciples actually thought they were seeing a ghost. They, they said, what, what is this? Is this a ghost? At best, they assumed they were losing their mind because they had just watched him be crucified on a cross, and now he is whole and new with wounds walking into a locked door. But he is clearly identifying himself by showing his actual body the wound marks in his hands and his sides. And then uh, Jesus asks the disciples for something to eat. He, he was demonstrating that he had a physical, glorified body that could consume food. He wanted them to know that he was a physical, glorified body. He wasn't just a ghost, because ghosts can't eat. And so they made him broiled fish, and he ate with them. So here's the guy I want to focus on today in John 20, 24 through 29. So read along with me on the screen. Not out loud, but follow along. Uh, <laughs> It says, now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. And though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Jesus, you got to stop showing up like this. I mean, that's what they're, they're, they're worried about. He's just walking in, saying that. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here, see my hands, reach out your hand, put it in my side, stop doubting and believe. And Thomas said to them, my Lord and my God. And this is actually a a phrase, it's an exclamation that if in the, in the culture, if you declared that, that would give uh, Jesus, the, the, the Lord God, the highest point of faith. It is the thing that you would say if you were sold out, if you were all in. And so he says, Jesus, my Lord and my God. And then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And so these disciples, they have just celebrated Easter They didn't even call it that, but they celebrated the very first Easter of all time. And just a few days later, this was about a week later, they began to question, what if this is not all true? What if if this is not all that it appears to be? And maybe you can relate to Thomas and the disciples more than you care to admit. Maybe um, you find the resurrection hard to believe. Maybe you kind of come to church and you celebrate and you enjoy it, but then when sort of that emotion is over, you go home and you think, you know, I just don't know if this is all as true as it looks. And if you have a hard time believing in the resurrection of Jesus, 
That's because it is hard to believe. It is hard to believe. The resurrection is one of the most incredible and doubted events in all of history. That doesn't make it any less true. But it is hard to believe. So my question today is, do you ever have doubts that creep in? Do you ever think, uh, why does faith come so easily for other people? Why well, they seem like they're, they totally don't ever wonder about all of these things. I, I, I am thinking about it all the time. I'm overthinking about it all the time. Do you feel maybe like, I want to believe, I want to believe this, but sometimes I just can't. It all just seems so improbable. Maybe you're a fact person. Maybe you like spreadsheets and numbers and, and bottom lines. And, and maybe sometimes it's just all a little too theatrical at times, and, and you think to yourself, you know, if, if I could just see some proof, some, some, you know, mathematics that get me there, I would, I would believe. And as we just looked in the scripture, if that's you, you're in good company. Because even the disciples who watched the entire thing play out, before their eyes, they walked with Jesus, they touched him, they talked to him, they sat with him, they watched him eat broiled fish. They had doubts. And so we're just going to look at two quick things this morning. If you have doubts, how do you respond to them? And how does Jesus respond to them? How do you respond to your doubts and how does Jesus respond to them? So let's start with how we respond to our doubts. So I find it interesting that um, the Holy Spirit did not inspire John, the writer of that gospel, to pen and, and write the account of Thomas to embarrass him. It is not in the scripture so that we can say, oh, Thomas, you, you, know, you lack of faith or have condemnation. Or, or it, it was not to embarrass him in that moment. It's recorded because God has important things to teach us about our own doubts. It's report, recorded because God isn't trying to ignore our doubts. So, so you shouldn't either. Um, my husband and I worked with college students for over a decade together, and now he continues um, to do campus ministry at Edinburgh. And we would just see time after time students who grew up uh, in great youth groups that came from amazing churches like this one, um, they would uh, get to campus, and their feet would hit the ground, and their faith would crumble. In fact, uh, the statistic, terrible statistic, is that 80%, 8 out of 10 youth who grow up in church fall away when they get to college. And I believe that one of the reasons that this happens is because we are taught to ignore our doubt. We're taught to be ashamed of it, to not ask that question because you will somehow come off as someone that doesn't have enough faith. We, we hide them away and we, and we try to have this kind of shiny exterior of faith. We pretend that we get it because there's no room to live in the tension, that we can't possibly express them or we'll be met with opposition, sometimes well-meaning opposition, maybe people who might say, you know, you need to just believe, and they're, and they're trying to get you there, but you get to the point where if you don't ask any questions, as soon as someone comes against your faith and you cannot defend it, even to yourself, it just crumbles. The definition of faith is not just to blindly believe. I, I do not believe that Jesus asks us to check our brains at the door. He is asking us to engage and ask questions and wrestle and live in the tension of not understanding. 
Scripture says in Hebrews 11, faith is being sure of what we don't see. And we need to wrestle through and understand that even though we don't always see it, that we believe what God has said. And so in Matthew 28, uh, this passage is talking about the 11 disciples. And like we said, men, they saw Jesus, they touched him, they watched him, they talked to him, they lived among them. So I want to bring you to Matthew 28, 17. You may have passed over this when you read this scripture. This is what it says. When they, which is the disciples, saw him, they worshiped him. But some doubted. These disciples that were with him every day still had doubts, even then. But here is the powerful moment. And Jesus acknowledges that some of the disciples doubted. But in verse 18, this is what he says. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's what we're about to do today. And teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Jesus is saying, You may have your doubts, but all authority has been given to me. Jesus says, I am with you always, and all authority has been given to me, and it actually has much less to do with you than it has to do with me. And Jesus says, he didn't, he didn't kick them off the team. He didn't scold them. He didn't say, you, you, and you can go baptize, but you guys better get it together. He said, doubt does not disqualify you. That's what Jesus says in that moment. Now, doubt is not the opposite of faith. Hear me say this. Unbelief is. If the disciples were unbelieving, if they were unbelieving that Jesus could do those things, then that would have been a deal breaker. But doubt is not the opposite of faith. Unbelief means that we make a decision not to believe. It means we refuse to accept that there is a God. We refuse to believe that Jesus died on a cross for our sins. We refuse to believe that here's our Lord and Savior. That's unbelief. That is a, is a whole different ballgame than doubt. But you can have a strong faith and still not understand all there is to understand. You can have a strong faith and not have every theological question settled once and for all. You can be a follower of Jesus and still have uncertainty. He is not afraid of your questions. He, he asks you to take steps toward him, to wrestle and to work it out, to trust him more and more. But he says, when you're having doubts, pull closer to me. Don't push away from me. Pull closer. Lean in. Help me help, me help you understand. Or help me help you trust me even though you don't understand. That is what develops us into people that can stand before a situation and say, you know, I don't really get it, but God's still good. I don't really understand why this is happening, but God's still good because I know his character, because I, I understand the heart of God. You know, I believe that Jesus loved the accountants and the scientists and the engineers and the logical thinkers of this world so much that he thought ahead and he did things just for you. That, that he loved you that much. And this is what I believe that one of the reasons that Jesus came to visit over 500 people after he had resurrected 
was because he was purposely creating evidence just for you. He was purposely creating evidence so that you could look into it and you could understand that what he says is real and true. And I want to encourage you, if you have never looked into the evidence of the reality of Jesus, it is compelling. It will take you some time. It will take you some research. And if you need some recommendations, I would love to give them to you. And I could go over weeks and weeks of this, but I just want to mention one uh, quick researcher's findings to you this morning. And it was in the mid-1900s. It came from a science professor named Peter Stoner. I put the book up there in case you guys want to write it down. Uh, he published a book called um, Science Speaks. So it's Peter Stoner, um, Science Speaks. And um, what he did was he chose just eight prophecies of Jesus, he, just eight things that were written down about Jesus uh, long before he came to earth. And these were the eight, um, that Christ was to be born in Bethlehem, that he would be preceded by a messenger, which was John the Baptist, that he would enter Jerusalem on a donkey. Christ would be betrayed by a friend. He would be sold for 30 pieces of silver. That money for which Christ was sold would be thrown, into, uh, thrown to the potter in God's house. Christ would be silent before his accusers. And Christ would be executed by crucifixion, which was like a thief in that day. Just those eight, okay? And he found that the chance that any man might have fulfilled all eight of these prophecies was one with 17 zeros behind it, like that. That was the chance, that one man would fulfill all eight of those prophecies. And he put it in these terms, and, and, and for someone who's a little bit less mathematical than maybe some of you, this was genius for me. He said, imagine if you took um, silver dollars, that many silver dollars, and you spread them all across the state of Texas, they would be two feet deep. So two feet deep of silver dollars all across the state of Texas. And imagine marking one of those silver dollars with an X and blindfolding a man, putting him in a helicopter, letting him fly around Texas, and then at the moment that he says land, you would land the helicopter, get out, pick up the first silver dollar, and that would be the one with the X on it. That is the probability of that number. That is the probability that Jesus would fulfill randomly eight messianic prophecies I just mentioned. Unbelievable, right? Un unbelievable. Hard to even comprehend that moment. All right, let me blow your mind a little more. You ready? That was just eight. So this scientist branches out and he adds eight more. So 16 total. 16 total that foretold Jesus' life. And the number would be this, one with 45 zeros following it. So the scientist again likens it to silver dollars. But this time, it's not just Texas. This number of silver dollars would have to cover the entire globe. Oceans, land, your house. We cover the whole thing two feet deep. And the probability would be, imagine blindfolding a man, telling him to pick one silver dollar on the entire globe. Would you ever expect he would choose that one the very first time? This is the idea 
that any one person fulfilling just 16 of the prophecies written about Jesus hundreds of years ago before his birth. But the God who loves me and the God who loves you and the one who stood in the upper room and offered to have Thomas touch the scars in his hands, the one who always proves that he says who he is, didn't fulfill just 16 prophecies. He fulfilled over 300 prophecies. 300 prophecies penned by different men in different languages from various countries, written over hundreds of years, all fulfilled in one man, one king, our king. Proverbs 35 says every word of God proves true. And I believe that God's word is more reliable than the sun that rises every morning. And our creator has left his undeniable fingerprints for us to know that he is our God. But I want to encourage you, study the evidence because it is compelling. Push into God with your doubts because he will always prove to be right and true and good. He always will. But push into him. Look into it, because God is not afraid of your questions. He is not uh, worried about your doubts. If you believe and you want to know who he is and more about him, then you push those doubts into him. You don't have to ignore them. Secondly, how does Jesus respond to our doubts? Well, like we saw um, in that scripture, Jesus didn't get upset. He, he didn't lecture. He didn't send them to the back of the line. He simply reassured them who he was. And I believe that Jesus is patient with our doubts. I believe that Jesus knows best and how and when to reveal himself to us. And he knew the disciples would need to touch the wounds in his hands and his side. He didn't wait for them to ask. He just showed them because he knew that's what they would needed. He knew he would have to eat the fish so they would understand his body wasn't just a ghost, that he was a resurrected body, a, a glorified body. And he was willing to prove to them because he loved them. He was not insulted that they wanted to see proof. He willingly and patiently offered it to them. I think maybe to me, one of the most wonderful things of the story of Thomas is <clears throat> that Jesus came to him. But he didn't come right away. Uh, Jesus let Thomas wrestle with his doubt first because it exposed weaknesses in Thomas's faith. And it made him think hard about what he believed and, and why. And it made him more desperate and more humble. And it made Thomas more solid and more strong in the end. But when the time was right, Jesus rescued Thomas from his doubt. But Jesus knew when the time was right. And I believe that Jesus does that for all of us doubting sheep. So if you're here this week and maybe throughout the week it has sort of plagued you, that it is difficult maybe to believe all of this. It's difficult to settle every theological doubt that you have. Don't give up. Just hold on. Don't throw it all in because you don't see the whole picture right away. It takes a lifetime of wrestling through what God has for us. And remember, after Thomas has his moment with Jesus, I want to go back to John 20. Jesus reminds him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And so what he's saying is that um, those who believe that haven't 
put their hands in his wounds are more blessed than Thomas's seeing because those saints relied on their eyes of faith more than their eyeballs in their head. And faith seeing results in more joy than eye seeing. So where in your life is God asking you to see with your faith before you see with your eyes? Where is God asking you to look into a situation and see it through his eyes before you see it through your own? And I think this is why Peter, Thomas's fellow eyewitness, later wrote this in 1 Peter 1, 8 through 9. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him. And rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. You know, Jesus asks us to trust him even when we don't have it all figured out. So will you trust him today? Will you trust him? So there are some people here today that have planned to um, be baptized. And if you're part of that group, I want you to come up and meet me at this door over here. We're going to go out this way, and we're all going to get ready. And Pastor Don's going to come up and talk a little bit more about baptism. But I also think he's going to talk about uh, that if you have decided today that you haven't come prepared to be baptized, but you want to push through your doubts and trust Jesus, that there's an opportunity to do that. And Don's gonna, Pastor Don's going to share with you a little bit more about that. So would you give him a hand as he comes? Well, if I wasn't going to say that, I am now because she told me I have to say it. How many of you have ever seen the farmer's insurance commercial? We know a few things because we've seen a few things. That's kind of how I feel. In 40-plus years of ministry that Barbara and I have been a part of together, when it comes to water baptism, because it is such an important topic, we've also watched it create or arouse a lot of controversy and um, a lot of confusion. So for some of you, what I'm going to say to you today, you've known for years. For others, it may be, hopefully it will be enlightening. And for those of you who are still, you came and you wanted to be baptized, but you still, you just, you know, you're kind of on the edge. Um, maybe I'll be able to push you off the edge and, and you'll go ahead and, and be baptized today. But the thing is, people get baptized in water for various reasons. Unfortunately, those reasons often precede or take precedent over the biblical mandate and the significance of water baptism. I won't take a lot of time. I, we want to give Pastor Nicole plenty of time to share, but I think it's kind of important to, to lead into so you can understand this a little bit. In our years of ministry, I have baptized in a creek. Uh, if you're from the south, it's a creek. Uh, I baptized in a creek. We have baptized in a river. We have baptized in a lake. We have baptized in a swimming pool. Um, we have had someone in a wheelchair come up with, uh, on the platform with a tarp and put them in a, in a prone position, and we've water over their head in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and, and baptized. And even I had an elderly lady who had accepted Jesus when she was watching Fully Alive, and she lived in Cambridge Springs. We got a call and said, my mother really would like to be baptized, but she's homebound. She, she can't get out. She's homebound. 
Would you come and talk with her? So I went to Cambridge Springs. We said we talked about her confession of faith. We talked about that she had repented of her sin. Jesus Christ was her Lord and Savior. And she said, but I just, I, I so much want to be baptized. So I don't know that it was a God thing or just me being creative or what, but I said, tell you what, let's go to the kitchen sink. And we're going to put a towel around your neck, and I want you to bend your head over in the sink, and I'm going to take the sprayer. And so that the water is warm, it's warm. But as we prayed, and I said, now upon profession of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. And that woman was so blessed. She was so blessed. So why do I tell this to you? Because oftentimes, uh, whether it's been your upbringing or your church background or what you're familiar with, so many times we get more concerned over the method than we actually do the message. And why we are here this morning is this. There are people who have come here who said, I have heard the gospel I have confessed my sin, I've accepted Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, and I'm following the biblical mandate. Now, maybe you have uh, things that are going through your mind at this particular point that's kind of keeping you teetering on the edge, such as, I would get baptized, but I don't feel worthy enough. Well, none of us are. It's only by the grace of God that we have that sense of worth that comes to us. And so if we wait till we're worthy enough, that probably will never happen. There may be some of you sitting here today say, Pastor Don, yeah, I'd like to get baptized, but I'm just not quite ready. Well, when will you be ready? When you read the book of John? Will you be ready when you read the Gospels? Will you be ready when you read the Old Testament and the New Testament? See, friends, isn't it interesting that we don't wait till we're ready to buy a house? We don't wait till we're ready to buy a car. We don't even wait till we're ready to get married or to have children. We just do it. We're not professionals at it. We don't have it all down. We don't understand it all. We don't know what the end result is going to be but we do it. But when we come to water baptism, I'm just not ready. And then maybe you say, but, but you know, I remember I was baptized as an infant, so I don't need to be baptized. I was baptized as an infant. And I understand that. But at Erie First, what we hold to is there's two words that that we, we link with infant baptism and verses with, as we get older. And one is, is maturity, and the other is comprehension. And as an infant, I will only speak for myself, as an infant, I did not have the maturity or the comprehension to understand what water baptism was all about. So when we follow the method of immersion that we see in Scripture, and you're here today, and you say, well, I was baptized as a child. So that, that it's, water baptism is not about your salvation. Water baptism does not save you. Only Jesus Christ saves us. Water baptism 
is an open act, a demonstration of what Jesus has done in our heart and life, and it's a testimony to those in this sanctuary of what God's done in your life. Now, without sounding really, really negative, let me tell you why I don't want to get baptized. I don't want to get baptized just to have a better relationship with God. Because for me to come and get baptized today is not going to make me any worse or any better in God's eyes. See, here's the thing, friends. God, no matter what you do, God will never love you any more or any less than he loves you right now. So for me to get baptized thinking it's going to give me an end with God, now I don't want to get baptized for that reason. I don't want to get baptized because somebody else for other people. They're saying, hey, you ought to do it, you ought to do it, you ought to do it. See, water baptism is an act of obedience to Jesus. It's not to satisfy someone else's contentment. So I wouldn't get baptized this morning just because somebody told me to, just because somebody else did. Uh, I wouldn't get baptized this morning uh, because... I'm looking for a fresh start. See, these, this would be a situation where I got baptized, uh, let me just pick a number, 20 years ago. And in the next five years, I messed up. I got away from Jesus. I came and rededicated my life, and now I go get baptized again because I want a fresh start. And then another five years goes by, and I do some bad stuff, and I come to Jesus, and I ask him to forgive me of my sin. So I want to get baptized again because... I want a fresh start. The fresh start comes when we come to the cross. The fresh start comes not when we go under the water, but when we come to the cross and say, Jesus, will you forgive me? And I accept your forgiveness. And I want a, a fresh start. I want to rededicate my life to you. But it really has nothing to do with, with water baptism. See, I, I wouldn't get baptized this morning just because it's an emotional high. In other words, we get into the baptism uh, part of the ministry, and you people are going to be clapping, and maybe somebody's going to whistle, and the band is singing, and we're just, just, just and, and I, I go, yeah, yeah, this is the thing to do. I want it. I wouldn't get baptized for that reason. I would get baptized because I've heard the gospel. I've confessed my sin. I've accepted Jesus as my Lord and Savior. And it's my decision. It wasn't my mother. It wasn't somebody sitting next to me. And we encourage you, Pastor Nicole, and we encourage you to consider it. We encourage you to follow Jesus in that, in that process of water baptism. But, but I wouldn't get baptized just because somebody told me to. So here's where we are. If you have come today and you've been considering it, you've been thinking about it, but you've had some, you've had some as Pastor Nicole said, you've had some doubts. There have been some doubts. 
I'm not worthy. I'm not ready. I don't want to get baptized for this, 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 and this. Water baptism is an act of obedience. It's not a matter of how many chapters in the Bible you've read, how many times you've been to church on Sunday, or how many Bible studies you've attended. It's an act of obedience of following Jesus' example and pattern that he gave to us. When you go into that water, and that is symbolic as they take you under the water, that is symbolic that you're dying out to your old life. However, unlike Jesus' death, we don't keep you down for three days. <laughs> we bring you up. But when you come up, you come up in a newness of life, and it's a testimony to your friends and family here that this has been my decision, it's my conviction. And I may not be worthy, and I may not be ready, but I am going to walk by faith in the obedience that Jesus Christ has commanded me to partake of. And that is why I want to get baptized. Now, I'm... Go ahead. Amen. So you may, you may still have your last card that you're playing is that I didn't bring any clothes. We have clothes for you. One size fits all. And what I'm going to ask you to do, uh, Luke, are you going to have a stand this morning? Okay. So in just a moment, I'm going to ask you to stand as Luke leads us in worship. And if you are making that decision today and you say, Pastor Don, what you said has made sense, and yes, today is my day. What I'm going to ask you to do is simply slip out the back and go to my right, and there will be people waiting for you that will take you up, show you where the clothes are at. We have a towel for you, and you can get in line with Pastor Nicole and Joel and experience one of the greatest experiences in your life. So let me encourage you to consider that, and we'd love to have you join us as we share in this very important ordinance of the church, water baptism. So would you stand with me this morning as we continue in worship? Yeah. Hey. 